And we welcome you to the Thursday morning show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. I am delighted to be reconnecting with a faculty colleague from Carthage, uh, Dr. Anthony Barnhart, who's chair of the Psychological Sciences Department at Carthage College. And uh, Dr. Barnhart has been on the program before, not only to talk about the field of psychology itself, of which obviously he has uh, very direct uh, interest and experience and expertise, but also the fact that he happens to be a very skilled magician and loves the whole field of that kind of so-called magic and the work of magicians and sort of the psychological aspects that are part of that. And uh, so if, if we have a chance, we'll touch on a bit of that as well in this conversation. Primarily, though, this invitation to Professor Barnhart uh, came about because of of some concerns he expressed about a recent morning show interview that maybe some of you heard as well. It was actually an interview out of the Dusty Archives with a woman by the name of Michelle Nesbolt, a book called Sex, Lies, and Handwriting, in which she talked about the work that she has done primarily uh, in the arena of criminal justice when it comes to the analysis of handwriting. And um, Dr. Barnhart knows something about this field particularly as it is most sort of scientifically based. And he really took issue with uh, some of the things that she said and sort of the perspective that she was bringing to a, a very complicated and often misunderstood field. And uh, he was, I'll say, nice enough, uh, <laughs> first of all, to listen to the interview because he saw that it was going to be about handwriting. And then when he had some uh, felt it's, uh, had kind of a disconcerting reaction to, in fact, what the guest had to say. I appreciate the fact that he took the time to communicate that to me, not exactly as a complaint, but just uh, <laughs> just for what it was, concerns about what this guest had to say about this really important topic. And uh, I not only thanked Professor Barnhart for taking the time to do that, but invited him to come on the morning show. It's not the first time that somebody has heard something uh, that concerned them on the program. And, uh, and came on the program to, in a state, in a sense, offer uh, a rebuttal of sorts or to uh, offer what they felt was important and needed clarification. So that's what we're doing today for at least a portion of today's conversation. So anyway, Professor uh, Anthony Barnhart, we welcome you back to the morning show. Well, thank you, Greg. Yeah, as a, as a person who carries out research in a couple of pretty arcane areas, it's exciting when my research has societal relevance. <laughs> so I, was, I, I listened with great interest to what, what I now know was a, a repeat of, right. uh, of an episode on, on handwriting. And, uh, and I, sh I should mention as well, I, I asked you earlier this morning uh, if you had, in fact, listened to the entire interview uh, or if you at some point just had to snap it off because of your <laughs> mounting frustration and uh, tell our listeners about your answer. I, I actually listened to it twice, all the way through, uh, once during my commute to work when my attention was limited and once uh, with more focused attention so I could make sure that I was actually uh, getting a clear understanding of what Michelle Dresbold was saying. <laughs> so, yeah. And it turns out it thoroughly listened to. Right. And it turns out that your your concerns or uh, about what she uh, had to say or how she said it uh, were well-founded. It wasn't you weren't mishearing anything. <laughs> you were hearing it all just fine. So um, so let's let's get a sense of of kind of the central nature of your 
concerns about mm-hmm. um, how she was approaching this topic. And uh, I hope along the way you will mention a certain term, which yes. you never heard her utter once through the course mm-hmm. of this conversation, which I think in your mind was a very solid indication uh, in a sense of where she was coming from and maybe the credentials that yeah. she possessed. Yes. Yeah, so when I when I saw, uh, you, I, I listened to your uh, program in podcast form, and when I saw that you were having this handwriting expert, I was I was surprised when it was a name that I didn't recognize. Uh, I'm not familiar with Michelle Dressbold prior to your episode, and and that's that's possibly because the kind of academic work that I do is just separate from the kind of work that she does. I came to learn that um, she is one of these document analysis types, document comparison. So her training does seem to be in in areas of uh, matching handwriting between individuals. And I don't take any real issue with the the substance of her her information in that area. Uh, I that's probably reasonable work that she does. But a substantial portion of your interview was about um, claims she's making about how you can read a person's handwriting, uh, personality from their handwriting. And she made this point of saying that really we should be calling it brain writing because handwriting comes from the brain. And, and that, uh, immediately threw up some red flags for me because while it is true that your brain controls your hand when you are doing handwriting, it also controls every motor behavior you engage in, whether it be walking or driving or all of this stuff comes from the brain. So the fact that this motor behavior comes from the brain doesn't necessarily make a diagnostic of anything. Like you wouldn't claim to be willing to read a person's personality from their gait when they're walking or the way that they throw a baseball. What is it about handwriting that makes it particularly unique in carrying this information about the writer? Well, so this uh, practice of making inferences about a writer's personality from their handwriting has a long history. Uh, It dates back to the early 1800s. And it's the practice is called graphology. Uh, and as I noted in my email to you, I was surprised that that term never came up during the interview. And I ended up pulling up her book on Google Books, and I searched the, the full text of her book, and that term never shows up in her book either. And I think there's probably a good reason for that. The moment you put the word graphology into the Google machine, you are presented with all of the uh, critical views of graphology. In fact, like the very first hit in Google is a Wikipedia page that basically opens with saying that graphology is a pseudoscience for which there is no evidence. Uh, So uh, yeah, basically everything that she said about um, cues in a person's handwriting that tell you something about their personality is based on either no science or invalid science. Um, in fact, in uh, I I turned back to this this uh, this literature in preparing for this, and the most recent meta analysis that I could find on graphology. Um, a meta-analysis is kind of a state of the state on the research. It takes every paper that's ever been published in the area, and it does some math to try to tell us what we should believe about the existence or the strength of this phenomenon. 
Well, the most recent meta-analysis from was from 1992. And in looking at all of the work that had been done, it concluded that there's no practical evidence to support the claims of graphology, that you can read personality from handwriting. Um, it turns out that the only things that you can reliably infer about a person based on the features of their handwriting are gender, socioeconomic status, and degree of literacy. And um, probably those latter two, socioeconomic status and degree of literacy, are really just a function of the fluency with which you write, right? People who have higher socioeconomic status probably tend to have more opportunities to write. And so they're more fluent communicators in writing. And that's highly correlated with degree of literacy. Um, so while those three things, gender, socioeconomic status, and degree of literacy, might correlate with some personality traits, um, it doesn't sort of vindicate the practices of graphology. Uh, and the science is actually pretty clear on this. There have been experiments where they have actually compared um, predictions from graphologists about the personality of a writer to predictions made by Joe Schmo, like you and me off the street, who has no training in this stuff. And it turns out trained graphologists are just as good as untrained graphologists at inferring personality from handwriting, and both groups are terrible at it. <laughs> wow. So, in, uh, so just back to that term of graphology. So yeah. in a sense, if in fact that the author, Michelle Nesbold, is engaging in graphology, and at least part of what she does is yeah. the work of graphology, and if she had called herself that, it would have been a little bit like if someone uh, with some uh, new medicinal offering <laughs> was to uh, call themselves a snake oil salesman or yeah. something. I mean, that would the, the connotations of that would be severely negative, and, yes. and, and rightly so from what you're describing to us. That's right. Yeah. So one thing that I do want to make clear is that um, – I'm not suggesting that Dresbold is a shyster or a con artist or anything like that it, because it is really easy to convince yourself that this stuff is credible. Um, it is easy to fool yourself into believing that uh, these kinds of um, rituals actually produce credible evidence. Um, we've seen this a, a lot. Uh, I always call upon um, one of my colleagues, Ray Hyman, who is uh, an emeritus professor of psychology at the University of Oregon and, and kind of a prolific skeptic. And he tells this story about how he got drawn into palmistry while he was in college. On a whim, he just thought it would be a fun party ability to be able to read people's palms and he was you know kind of a socially awkward guy so this was a, this was an in to communicating with other humans uh, and so he like read some books on palmistry and palm reading and he got really good at this and as he started doing this at parties he really convinced himself that he was able to tell people's personalities from the lines on their hands uh, and he had one um psychology professor when he was under an undergrad who took him aside and said, hey, you know what? You should do a little informal experiment on this. Next time you're at a party and you're doing this palm reading, instead of telling them what you think their palm is saying, tell them the opposite. 
and see what happens. And so he tried this and it worked just as well as the, the real readings uh, and maybe even better. Uh, and it, it points to this tendency that we as humans have uh, called our confirmation bias. We are able to latch on to evidence that seems to support our beliefs about the world and completely ignore contrary evidence. And I suspect something similar like that happened as Michelle Dresbold began practicing or learning graphology. It's easy to, to, to find these instances where you have a handwriting sample that seems to conform to your beliefs, like looking at Donald Trump's handwriting, that seems like clear evidence, but you're ignoring all of the, the, the handwriting that you may have observed that doesn't match the pattern you're looking for. It's easy to just sort of push those outside of your awareness. Um, and so we come to these erroneous beliefs about ourselves and about our, our, uh, our abilities when it comes to these sorts of exercises. When uh, I sought out our previous morning show conversation from 2017, one of the topics that we explored for, for, for a, a bit of time, and it was so fascinating, uh, was skepticism. And skepticism used uh, in a more sort of substantive way than the way we use the term skepticism yeah. uh, in just casual conversation, although they're certainly closely related. But... Uh, that really came to mind then now, and, and, and again, as I'm listening to you talk about Michelle Nesbolt's book, that, uh, that the kind of skepticism that we were talking about in that previous conversation uh, is the kind of skepticism that, for instance, she and other graphologists neglect to use in this work that they do. So first of all, uh, remind our listeners or, or tell our listeners who didn't hear that first conversation uh-huh. um, the way you're using the term skepticism and its applicability to what we're talking about today. Sure. So skepticism, the term skepticism has taken on some strange connotations in recent years. The kind of skepticism that I promote and practice and that I, that I hope students will, will learn to engage in uh, at, at Carthage College is, is scientific skepticism. So, so letting evidence-based reasoning shape your beliefs about the world rather than anecdotal evidence. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's a hard thing to do it, because we don't necessarily always have access to the evidence that we need to make uh, smart inferences, um, but it's the kind of critical thinking that I think um, can promote societal well-being uh, that can make us a better society and that can, that can shape um, policy in ways that will, will make everyone better. Unfortunately, um, around the, the climate change uh, evidence, like there's another kind of skepticism that has popped up, skepticism that isn't grounded in science, that isn't this scientific skepticism. Skepti that kind of skepticism is just driven by anecdotal accounts, by word of mouth, by repeating talking points you've heard other people use without actually digging into the science that actually that speaks to what you're studying. Um, so while I say it's hard to engage in scientific skepticism, um, it's also the case that it's easier now than it ever has been before, right? We have, we have the whole of the internet at our fingertips 24 hours a day. And there are 
credible sources of information on the internet that you can refer to to find the state of the state when it comes to some topic that science has explored, including graphology, right? W Wikipedia has its critics, but uh, it's, uh, it's a pretty solid source of, of reasonable information when it comes to things that have actually been studied scientifically. It's pretty well policed these days. Yeah. So Michelle Nespold, uh, in your mind, and I think in my mind as well, uh, did not engage sufficiently in this kind of skepticism when it, for instance, comes to the work that she has done as a graphologist, that if she would look at this work and what she is doing through that particular lens, uh, she would probably come to very different conclusions than she has. I think she would have to, because I think the science is pretty clear. And the science has been clear for a very long time. I mean, there were psychologists uh, in the early 1900s that explored these things and concluded there wasn't much to it. Um, the Graphology is just one in a long series of pseudoscientific techniques for reading personality. We're always in search of these kind of tells, these subtle pieces of information that will give us deep insights into personality. And so far, we haven't found any beyond like the, the, the long survey tools that personality psychologists use. I, uh, I wonder if you have any thoughts on what is driving that. I mean, people come up with all kinds of... Yeah fairly crazy notions about a, a, a lot of things. I mean, all the way to the, the, the earth is really flat and so on. Yeah, but, yeah. but when it comes to this, um, the fact that there are, are countless examples of trying to come up with really clear and concise and measurable means to kind of sort out who we are as messy, complicated human beings. Yeah. What, what kind of satisfaction does one gain from coming up with these sorts of systems like graphology. Yeah, I, I mean, I think these kinds of pseudosciences flourish because they all have intuitive appeal. Uh, they all just kind of feel right. And and when when Dresbold talked about really handwriting should be called brain writing. It just felt right, right? Like, like your hand has this direct connection to your brain. And in fact, the region of your brain that controls your hand is right next to regions that have been implicated in language. So it feels like it would be a rich source of information. And, and I think that's what all of these pseudosciences have. They have this, this in, rich intuitive appeal. But when it comes, especially to pseudosciences that that seem to speak to a person's personality. Um, there's also this fundamental error that we make um, where we really believe we're all unique flowers, right? We're all, all unique snowflakes and we're vastly different from each other when really we are all much more alike than we are different. And all of these... Um, exercises in personality reading exploit that fact. Um, so one of my favorite early um, classroom experiments in this phenomenon was carried out in 1949 by a fellow named Bertram Forer. Uh, he 
had his students take what they thought was this personality survey. Uh, and the next day he came back, he came into class and he handed out everybody's individualized personality sketches. And he had their students read their, their sketches and rate them on how well they seem to describe their personality. Um, and all of the students in the class rated their sketches as being highly accurate representations of their identity. Like on a scale of five, everybody gave it a four or a five. Uh, but the four wasn't being completely forthright. He gave all of the students exactly the same personality profile. They were all given exactly the same paragraph of text about their personality. Uh, and and that point, he called this the fallacy of personal validation. We, we find this evidence that resonates with us. We glom onto it. We ignore the things that maybe don't seem to resonate so much. Uh, and we tend to believe that we are, we are all unique flowers when really we are, we're very similar to each other. We have the same kinds of personalities. We just vary a little bit in the extent to which uh, each of these maybe big five factors of personality um, is weighted in our personalities. I think as I re-listen to the conversation with uh, Michelle Nesbolt, um, and I mean, re-listen to it since hearing your concerns about the conversation. Uh, I think the moment that struck me as, uh, well, ludicrous is maybe a strong <laughs> word, but that is the first word that comes to mind, is when, and, and I'm kind of, in a sense, ashamed of myself for not being more skeptical of this point in the moment. And I think maybe just because it was towards the end of the interview, I probably determined that there wasn't, enough time to really explore it, but I hope I was skeptical of this in the, at the time, uh, was when she talked about how she believed, and in fact had believed it was true of herself, that, that one could change one's, an aspect of one's personality by changing your handwriting. That is, if writing the letter T in such a way means that you're, I think her example was argumentative, if you somehow write the letter T in a certain way that demonstrates that you are argumentative and that if you change the way you write the letter T, you will become a less argumentative person. Yeah. And she says in this interview and in her book that she did that. She engaged in that exercise in changing this personality trait that she thought should mm -hmm. be changed. And that was her means to do it. And she you know, cites that as, in a sense, sure. evidence that there is that kind of correlation. I would love yeah. to know what you think about that. Of course, that's an imperfect experiment, right? Because she was also thinking about changing her personality, right? She wasn't just changing her handwriting. She was thinking about changing her personality. So in many ways, it was just a, a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, this idea that that our 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 minds and our identities reside not just in our brain, but in our body is an idea that's alive and well. Um, but it's an idea that I tend to believe is fundamentally flawed. Um, so if you believe as Dresbold does that um, if we change our handwriting, we can change our personalities. What happens to amputees? 
are are their personalities changed in predictable ways as a function of whether their writing hand is is amputated like or or what if you are paralyzed is your personalities like seriously changed as a function of this change to your body i suspect it isn't um aside from any personality changes that are a result of this trauma that you've experienced to your body um there are within the area of within language research there used to be this belief it's still around a little bit that um all language our understanding of language is actually housed in motor regions of the brain so in order for you to understand the speech that's coming out of my mouth right now you have to run this auditory signal through your motor regions and simulate the way that you would produce these words in order to make contact with their meaning. And, and that, that idea, which comes from, they're known as motor theories of speech perception. There have been motor theories of everything historically. But, but that idea seems to be at the heart of what Dresbold is claiming about changing handwriting to change your personality. And there's there's some very clear evidence that just completely undermines most motor theories, especially of speech perception. And that is, um, um, there are certain sorts of brain damage that you can have that impact only one of these processes. So for example, uh, if you can sustain brain damage to a region called Broca's area, which is a region known to be involved in language, it lives right next door to the motor areas of the brain. If you sustain damage to Broca's area, um, you will no longer be able to produce um, recognizable speech. But you'll be able to understand speech just fine. So that suggests that these motor regions of the brain, eh, not too important in understanding, right? You can damage these areas. It'll totally screw with your ability to produce speech, but it will not impair your ability to understand speech. Uh, and by the way, damaged Broca's area will also impact your ability to write, to engage in handwriting, but it doesn't impact your ability to understand it. Uh, so... So that one phenomenon that is frequent, right? Like after having a stroke, lots of people have this, have damage to this area. Um, that one piece of evidence that we've seen again and again and again totally undermines the motor theory arguments and the arguments that Dressbold is making. Fascinating. And, and that, that information helps us understand what those connections really are and it also clarifies what those connections are not. That's right. Yeah. And heck, there's another kind of, of these are called aphasias. Uh, if you have damage a little further back in the brain in an area called Wernicke's area, well, then you can kind of produce speech, but you can't understand speech anymore. So these, these things, production and understanding are, can be are disentangled from each other. They are related, but not, necessarily connected right when when you first reached out to me to you know, express your your concerns slash consternation about uh what this uh, <laughs> guest had, had said uh in this interview that that aired just over a week ago um you you attached 
either to that email or the next one, a fairly sizable document. It was, a, I think, a journal article that you co-authored that touched on, on, on some of this. Uh, and I think that's from some years ago. And sure. you said, uh, uh, you know, it was actually kind of fun to kind of revisit some of that. Uh, explain how you came to be exploring this. And is this something that uh, is, is, generally speaking, always a part of studying the psychological mm -hmm. sciences? Or, or for some particular reason, were you exploring this uh, in the careful way that you did? Yeah, so um, I think the paper I sent you was my first published work on handwriting. Um, I went to graduate school, so I'm a cognitive psychologist by training. That's the kind of psychologist that can't really help you, right? We just do experiments and we study the building blocks of thought. So things like language and attention and memory and, and all that stuff. And, and I went to graduate school to be a language researcher. And um, in my first year of graduate school, my, my mentor and I observed that everything we as scientists know about reading is based on people reading pristine typewritten text, right? We know exactly nothing about how people are able to look at, at someone else's handwriting handwriting they've never seen before and find the signal to know what the heck those words are on the page, right? Dresbold was right that everybody's handwriting is different. Everybody's motor areas behave a little differently. To, we're trained differently, right? To produce these hand, this handwriting. Uh, and so it's really a remarkable perceptual feat that we're able to look at all this variable handwriting and yet know what those words are. So that paper I sent you was our first set of experiments exploring some of the, the ways reading changes in the face of messy handwritten words. And I've, I've continued this, this research. It's a smaller part of what I do at Carthage College because it's, uh, there's a really vast literature behind it. And so it's hard for an undergraduate to get up to speed on it and be able to produce good, good science. Uh, it and it has less intuitive appeal. It's, it's complicated. Um, but uh, I do still continue to engage in this research. And we found some really surprising things about handwriting along the way. Um, so for example, um, we know that people are really sensitive to the unique features of spoken words, right? Like we can read into people's emotional states based on how they say words. Uh, probably um, I tell my students, like if you are sick and you call your mom on the phone, she knows within a few words that you're not feeling well, right? It's, it's presented in the way you speak. Uh, and, and we make use of this information uh, a lot when we're listening to people speak. And so it's a reasonable assumption that you might do the same with handwriting, that you might make assumptions about a person's mental state based on the way that their handwriting is produced, or that at least you might, you might encode, you might store some of these details, like inferences about gender and socioeconomic status and stuff like that. Uh, and so we, um, we did a series of experiments to see just how sensitive people are to these kind of what I'm calling surface features of handwriting. And it turns out people do not seem to extract these features at all. And if anything, they filter them out almost immediately. We were surprised to find uh, that um, 
when we briefly present people with words on a screen and ask them to like identify what one of the letters was in the word, they can identify what the letters were. But if we then immediately ask them whether the word they saw was in computer print or human cursive, they have exactly no idea. They have exactly the thing they just saw moments ago. They have no memory for its surface features. Uh, so, so when we started studying handwriting, we approached it as being kind of similar to speech, right? Because it has a lot of the same problems as speech perception does. But as we get deeper and deeper into this, the differences between reading cursive words and understanding spoken words are getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Wow. For those of you just joining us, I'm speaking with uh, Dr. Anthony Barnhart, who is chair of the Psychological Sciences Department at Carthage College. Uh, this is his second visit to the morning show, and uh, what precipitated it was some concerns that he had about uh, a recent morning show interview out of the archives with uh, Michelle Nesbolt, her book Sex, Lies, and Handwriting. And uh, so uh, we've been exploring some of the ways in which... Uh, uh, at least some of the information she was sharing in that interview and in that book uh, are less than than uh, scientifically sound or scientifically based. <laughs> and uh, so I appreciate this opportunity to, to explore this. Professor Barnhart, uh, some of what we've been talking about as we were talking earlier circles around the, the matter of skepticism. And skepticism uh, is certainly an important matter when it comes to something else that is a really important part of your life, namely magic. And the <laughs> sure. fact that uh, I believe since early childhood, you've been someone who has been uh, uh, a, 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 a magician of sorts. I mean, mm -hmm. and, and really quite a skilled uh, magician. I was going to say amateur, but maybe you've been a professional magician, a magician <laughs> at certain points in time. I mean, certainly you've have the skill to do that if you were so inclined. But uh, I wonder if you could just, first of all, kind of just give us a general sense of how this circles around a lot of the topics that you explore on a regular basis in your academic discipline. Sure. Yeah. So I, um, I, I was a professional magician. I basically paid for college doing magic shows. Um, and, and I think magic, actually pushes a lot of people towards skepticism and critical thinking because magic demonstrates to you just how fallible your memory and your perceptual systems are, how easily duped they can be. Uh, and so lots of magicians are drawn, uh, become skeptics by, by experiencing just how easily they can mess with people using these very simple techniques. But it also drives lots of magicians towards psychology because magic magicians are informal cognitive scientists. In order to figure out how to deceive a person, they have to have a pretty good idea of how that person's mind works in the first place. Right? All of the deceptive techniques that magicians use are testing hypotheses about the mind. And magicians have these rich insights into how psychology works that drive all of their techniques. And so while I was in graduate school studying this language stuff, I started seeing people publishing work that used magic as a tool in the laboratory for studying attention and perception. Or uh, 
just identifying hypotheses that were generated by magicians that could in some way be tested and that could speak to psychological science. And I thought, you know, there's nothing special about me to study handwriting or language, right? I have no, I don't have a leg up on anybody else. I can read the literature just like anybody else, but I have all this training in magic that could really give me a leg up if I wanted to approach this new research area. And so I kind of looked into who the movers and shakers were in this new field. And I found out some of them were just down the road from me. I was a student at Arizona State University. And some of the early researchers in this area were at a neurological institute just down the road from me. And so I, I reached out to them and told them who I was and what I was up to. And we struck up this long-term collaboration. Uh, and it really persuaded me that there's, there's meat on this bone right? A, a career can be built upon this new discipline, exploring the science of magic. So I would say that now about, I don't know, two thirds to three quarters of the work that I do in the lab is in the area of magic and attention, uh, either using magic tricks just as a tool, as a research tool, uh, or mining the magic literature for hypotheses about how attention works, that can be tested and integrated with more formal theories. Does it ever feel strange to be throwing around the term magic in the way that, I mean, some people use that term magic because they really believe there's a thing called magic. I mean, that's yeah. beyond the scope of human ken. And of course, you're not using the term magic in that way at all. And it just, yeah. it, it amuses me a little bit that uh, that the, the one and the same term is being used and, <laughs> and in a sense kind of thrown around. And I, in some ways it sort of feels like what, what you just said is magic tricks. You, you yes. study magic tricks and that is right. in a sense a shorthand for saying doing things that trick people into thinking that there's such a thing as magic yes. versus just calling it. Magic. <laughs> Theat I study theatrical magic. Yes, I guess I guess that's probably a caveat that I should include more frequently. Uh, but as this as this movement kind of gain gains steam, I uh, I find myself needing to use fewer and fewer qualifiers. Um, we are now there are now enough people doing this kind of work that we have an association. We have the Science of Magic Association that that hosts. Uh, international conferences every two years. Uh, I hosted the last one in 2019 down in Chicago, and we got about 100 scientists and magicians from around the world to, to converge on Chicago and talk about the work that we're doing. Um, yeah, so there is, there is this kind of disconnect. Uh, I probably do need to be clearer about the fact that I'm, I'm studying the methods of theatrical magicians. Yes. <laughs> Otherwise known as magic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm curious if you have any uh, opinion about Mr. Derek uh, Dalgaudio oh. and his one-man show in and of itself. This is a one-man show that my wife saw uh, oh, wow. in New York City off-Broadway. And I remember her, She was. this is a trip she took with friends, so I was not along at all and was not at this performance. And I remember you know, asking her about it, and she refrained from even trying to describe it and said, mm -hmm. just someday I hope you can see this for yourself. And now, recently, uh, it is possible to watch this show, a filmed version of it, uh, directed by Frank Oz. I don't remember on what mm -hmm. streaming service we watched it's it. It's on but, Hulu. Oh, Hulu. And it really was quite extraordinary. I just wonder, and, and recently, I should say, Derek Del Delgaudio was interviewed by Terry Gross on Fresh Air. 
and uh, although it was a guest host, and it was a very interesting conversation about um, a lot of aspects of his life. He's just written a memoir. I just wonder yeah. if uh, when somebody new in the field uh, shows up on the scene and mm-hmm. and sparks new conversations about this this whole arena, uh, what that what that means to you and and the and the things it gets you thinking about. Yeah, I am a big fan of Derek Delgadio, and I wish that I could have seen his off-Broadway show. Um, but but I feel like the Hulu documentary does probably a pretty good job of representing what that experience is. Yeah, everybody should seek it out. I just got his memoir in the mail yesterday, so I'm looking forward to reading that. A Moral Man, I believe it's called. Um, I I think Derek Del Gaudio is really doing great work to reinvigorate theatrical magic. Um, there's this trap that people fall into as magical performers. Um, lots of magic tricks are marketed, right? Like you can go to a magic shop and you can buy these magic tricks. And many of them come with scripts that the original performer used. And, and so you have these magicians that are just sort of regurgitating these scripts as they were marketed and using these materials. And it leads to these magic shows that are just really disjointed, right? Like that are just a bunch of unrelated modules that are jammed together, no through line of action and a voice that's changing from one, one magic trick to the next. And, and Derek Delgadio um, showed that a magic show, even though he doesn't really call his show a magic show, I would say it is a magic show can be um, emotionally impactful. It can resonate with the audience. It can develop deeper ideas and it can have a through line of action from start to finish. Um, And I think this is going to have a huge impact on the magic community. I think we're going to see more thoughtful magic as a function of, of Derek Del Gaudio kind of injecting this, this experience into the community. Um, Delgadio was kind of a known entity in the magic community, has been for years. He had a highly renowned uh, two-man show with a fellow named Helder Guimares, who is uh, who has a similar approach to magic. Um, when we started quarantine, one of the first big, well-marketed virtual magic shows was by Helder Guimares uh, at the Geffen Playhouse in Los Angeles. And it was um, it's still one of the most impactful virtual magic experiences that I've had during the pandemic. Um, it was, it was, um, uniquely geared toward the audience in a way that I didn't think was going to be possible with virtual performances. Uh, a few weeks before the show that you were attending, you got this mysterious package in the mail And throughout the show, he would work through the artifacts that were in this package and involve those artifacts in the magic. And and he was interacting with everybody in the Zoom room and the magic was happening in your living room through Zoom. And it was it was this emotionally resonant through line in his in his show that was about his early experience of something kind of like a quarantine after he had this terrible accident that laid him up as a kid and his grandfather exposing him to magic while he was 
essentially an invalid. So, yep, if you like Derek Delgaudio, you should seek out Helder Guimares. Um, can I spell his last name for you? No, no, I can't. <laughs> okay. People are on their own. All right. Well, uh, fair enough. Well, <laughs> Professor Barnhart, I really appreciate uh, the fact that uh, it, we, we've touched on a lot of different things, in some ways a lot of different things, but with uh, several different through lines that have tied it all together. And I am so glad that you uh, reached out to me with your concerns about the aforementioned uh, interview. And uh, I, I trust that uh, what we've talked about today offers some, some proper context. And, uh, and I also uh, encourage people to Google our earlier conversation from 2017, uh, in which we touch on other matters, including how you got started in the whole uh, matter of magic uh, as, as, as a youngster. Uh, but in the meantime, I thank you for this conversation today, Dr. Anthony Barnhart. What a pleasure to speak with you once again on The Morning Show. Thanks, Greg.